Well, I wanted to share with you a little bit of a jarring experience that um, my wife and I had this, this last week. Um, some of you know that, that the staff of Parkway goes up to Hume Lake every year. They have a pastor's retreat, and it's time for us to get away as, as couples and um, to connect with each other and also um, connect with our wives. And uh, it's kind of crazy. We leave on Monday, drive five hours up there, and then most of us return on Wednesday five hours back. So it's like two nights and crazy driving up back in our van. The air conditioning broke. So we actually bought bags of ice and put them on our feet and just tried to stay cool. It's like 95 degrees in Fresno. Um, but the final day, um, which was Wednesday, we were scheduled to leave at 10 a.m. in the morning. And um, Deanne and I, my wife and I, decided you know, hey, what are we going to do with the last few minutes we have? It's 20 to 10. And uh, we thought, you know, let's just walk down to the lake and kind of spend our last goodbye looking out over the lake and the mountains. And uh, for those of you who have been there, you know that it's just beyond gorgeous and majestic, just the, the way the granite spires just uh, tower over that, that lake. So we went down. It was just a kind of a last-minute decision. Let's go take a walk and spend our last few minutes sitting at a, you know, table. So uh, we sat at a little picnic table outside the snack shop, and it's a kind of across the lake, or actually the creek that comes into the lake, from where the pool is. And, and next to the pool, there's this, there's this deck, and um, right next to the volleyball court. And um, as we were sitting down, we noticed that there was this mother over there with her infant that she was holding, and she had this two-year-old little defiant kid who didn't want to listen to anything that she had to say. And she kept calling his name, Jeremiah, get over here, Jeremiah, get over here. Well, this deck um, kind of extends out over the edge of the lake. And the lake was down because they begin to drain it in the fall in preparation for the winter. And, and, um, and it exposes all of these sharp granite rocks. And those granite rocks are, Deanna and I argued about it, about between six and nine feet down from, from this, this, uh, this deck. This little Jeremiah kept dancing around over next to this, this uh this rail, um, with this six to nine foot drop onto these sharp granite rocks that have been placed there to keep the, the soil from eroding into the lake. And uh, my wife has a, has a keen sense of impending danger. I, I would call it almost a prophetic sense, but um, she, she knows when something's going to happen. Um, case in point, we were sitting at our kitchen table one time, and she, she stopped and she said, Dan! And I'm like, what? And just then an earthquake hit. And uh, she told me that she heard it coming, you know? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> one would think I'd learn to, you know, pay more attention to when she senses something. Well, well, this little Jeremiah is dancing over next to the rail, and the mother's calling, but she's not doing anything about it. And she said, she said, Dan, that, that little kid's going to go over the edge if that mom doesn't take control. And, uh, you know, I'm a dad. I don't really worry that, that much about stuff like that. <laughs> Moms are quite different. And I remember looking down, I was looking down at the time to find out how much uh, time we had left, you know, looking at my vintage iPhone 4. And, and uh, anyway, I'm looking down. All of a sudden, I hear this, Dan! And I'm, Dan! And I'm like, what are you shouting at me for? You know, I've done anything wrong today. And uh, anyway, so I, I look up, and she is booking it with her flip-flops, um, running around the bridge, and she's yelling at me, Dan, Dan. And she, she's, she's panicked. She's just trying to get there. She's not telling me what's happened. And um, she, says, she says to the lady, just stay there. My husband's going to get your son. And, um, and I, I stand up from the table. At this point, I'm panicked. I don't know what's going on. I just know that she's yelling my name, and she's panicked. So I look up, and there's this little two-year-old boy. Sure enough, he's laid out on the granite rocks like this, uh, kind of upside down, head right next to the water. And at that point, of course, I know what's, what's happening. Now I know why she's yelling my name. 
So I book it as fast as my little flip-flops will, will um, you know, allow me to go. Deanna gets to this lady because she's holding her five-week-old infant, and she can't do anything about her two-year-old who's down on the granite rocks. She's completely helpless. So Deanna runs over. She grabs the infant out of the mom's hands, and the mom is just trying to get over the rail and let herself down about the same time that I make it there. And this little two-year-old who's now screaming, which is a good sign, um, is scooped up and just lifted into the arms of the mom. And, and um, that's a, that is a freaky thing to, to experience or witness that. Um, we rushed him over to the infirmary where there's some kind of a medical person, I, I suppose, a nurse, who uh, checked him over. And what was utterly amazing to me was that after he was checked, checked out, that, um, that he had nothing really other than scratches and bruises. And, and I stood on those rocks, and I looked down at those rocks. I mean, we're talking jagged rocks um, that, that would crush a skull or, or um, um, break teeth and face. And I just, there's, there's really only one explanation for how um, his body came to rest after falling six to nine feet uh, onto hard granite um, stones. Um, and that is that the Lord in his grace brought that body down in a perfect way. And I know that, that the bones of little children are, you know, flexible and so forth, but that, I'm sorry, that just doesn't cut it for me. Um, God was right there in that, in that moment, and it was, it was um, hard to watch and hard to experience, but I reflected on, on that and have been reflecting on it since it happened. And what's equal, equally amazing um, to the fact that he actually was not, no concussions, no broken bones, um, was the fact that it was as if, uh, Deanna and I were supposed to be there right then. You know, um, only I think we got to, if our theology is right, we got to remove as if from that statement. Um, it was a divine appointment. Is that the Lord actually, it seemed to us like it was just kind of a last minute decision to go down to the lake. Nobody else was around. No one else was around. Um, the Lord just said, hey, I have some place I need you to be. And unbeknownst to us, we were there when it happened. And this woman was so grateful that there was somebody there to help. And you know, when I think about that, I think, you know, that was utterly and completely from the Lord. That was the Lord saying to this young mom, I am here for you. But I'm here for you in the form of my people. And uh, that just struck me, and I was amazed. I felt grateful to the Lord that to have been used, even though it was a really jarring experience. But it it struck me that, you know, that's oftentimes how God shows up in our lives. You know, we might want a pillar of fire, or we want a thousand angels to show up, or, you know, some kind of angelic army, you know, when we're in trouble. But it seems that most of the time when God shows his grace and mercy to us in real life, it's through through putting his people right there in our lives at just the right time, strategically arranged so that he can say, I'm here. If we have, you know, eyes to see that that's the case. And that, 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 that uh, as I was reading and studying First Samuel chapter 20, I thought, you know, this is exactly what the Lord is doing to his servant David in, in chapter 20, is that he is providing a gift of grace in the middle of David's dire straits, and it takes the form of another person. Um, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you'll know that in chapters 18 and 19, of course, 20 is this morning, um, that David has, he is in dire straits. He has now had six 
if not seven attempts on his life by the king, King Saul. And um, in the middle of these dire straits, in the middle of his fleeing and escaping and so forth, um, where does he turn? And it's as if, it's removed as if, God provided a divine gift in a person called Jonathan, a perfect person to stand beside David in his times of, of um, adversity, in his times of, of fleeing and persecution. A divine gift, God saying, here I am in the person of Jonathan, who ironically enough, and we're so familiar with the story, many of us, that we don't get the deep irony of that David's best friend, Jonathan, is the son of the king who wants to kill him. And, and in that relationship, David would find a sense of refuge. But it was a refuge that the Lord provided for him. And, uh, and that's what the story of chapter 20 is about, is about this friendship between Jonathan and David that David runs to in the middle of his turmoil. But it's more than just a friendship that has been forged. Back in chapter 18, we're told that Jonathan cut a covenant or made a covenant with David a covenant that implied vows and promises to each other to be faithful, almost like a husband and wife, but it's not that kind of situation. They took vows to each other, to stand by each other, to be faithful to each other, and so forth. And in that act, David, excuse me, Jonathan takes his royal robe and places it on David and so forth in an acknowledgement of what God is doing in David's life. David is moving up um, towards the kingship in, in Israel. Um, but it is this, this covenant that is central to this chapter. Over and over again, you just find them swearing to each other. It, it's, uh, you find the word steadfast love or covenant of the Lord. And all those words are used of God's covenant with his people. And the question for us as, as people who want to apply this, this chapter is, why does God spend a whole chapter exploring the different dynamics of this covenant of love between David and Jonathan, between these two men, between the crown prince, Jonathan, and God's choice, David? And I think one of the reasons that God preserves this covenant in this chapter, because the whole chapter revolves around that, is to teach us what it means to live in covenant love with God. That is there are, are, are like a living illustration of what it means to be in relationship with the Lord. And, um, and I find that the truth of this chapter is, 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 is relevant to a culture that has lost, and including the church, has lost a sense of what it means to be in relationship with Jesus. You know, we define love in so many distorted and, and um, aborted ways of you know, love being anything from a feeling to an infatuation to an indulgent lust today. And this is a necessary corrective, this chapter, on what it means to have a covenant relationship with the Lord. And the secondary application, of course, is that a covenant relationship with each other in our marriages as, and as a church, because we are a covenant community. And we're not often um, used to thinking of ourselves as a covenant community or in covenant relationship with the Lord, but the whole Bible's built on it, on the idea of covenant. We have the new covenant and the old covenant filled with all kinds of little covenants. It's, it's the structure of the entire Bible. And, um, and I think this chapter teaches us a little bit about what it looks like to live in that covenant relationship with the Lord and with each other. So let me uh, be, read beginning in verse 1, and, and just to, again, set you in the historical flow, is, is, is David has just escaped for his sixth time. 
King Saul, who wants to kill him, has been completely incapacitated by the Holy Spirit. He lies stripped um, all day and all night. And during that time, David has room to flee. And where does he flee? Where does he go? Where's the one place he feels safe? The one place where there is a sense of security. And it's his friend. This is what we read, beginning in verse 1. Then David fled from Nioth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? That's a question we would all ask if someone is trying to kill us. Like, what, what did I do? As he wants the answers, what have I done to make him so angry at me and want to kill me? Verse 2, and he said to him, this is Jonathan, far from it. You know, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? Um, it is not so. Um, but David vowed again. There's a vowing um, idea again, saying, no, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And, and he thinks, do not let Jonathan know uh, this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives... And as your soul lives, David's swearing here, um, taking an oath on the name of the Lord and, and the life of Jonathan, there is but a step between me and death. In other words, any time now I could go. And Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. Um, David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is a new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table of the king, but let me go. See, apparently, in that particular tradition, culture of the time, David is one of... Saul's um, main generals or commanders would sit at the table of the king um, at least two evenings of the month, and it would be um, a breach of etiquette not to show up. That's kind of what's, what's in view here. Um, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king. But let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, well, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, and here's the part, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, or why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan replies, far be it from you. In other words, don't use words like that. Um, if I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if the father, your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. They're going to go on to discuss how, how, how this plan is going to work out. Um, to summarize what, what's happening here is, is obviously there's a dialogue going on between David and Jonathan. And, and David is absolutely convinced, based upon his recent attacks, that um, Saul is out to kill him. And Jonathan um, is not convinced and so they come up with this little plan, and the little plan is David's not going to show up at this scheduled dinner. And if, 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 if Saul has evil in his heart, then he's going to get angry when David's not there. And kind of the behind-the-scenes logic of that is that if you, I'm sure you're well aware of it, is you want to know what a person loves and hates the most, look at what makes them the most angry. That will reveal what's in the heart. And if he's really angry at the fact that David's not there, well then... The idea is that it'll reveal what's in his heart, whether he's, uh, he has intentions to kill David or not. So that's kind of the, the plan here. But notice that, that, that David appeals in the middle of this huge trial in his life. He appeals to the covenant of the Lord that he has made with, with Jonathan. And it's on the basis of this, this covenant 
that they had agreed together and taken oaths to uh, be faithful to each other in the name of Yahweh. That's the covenant of the Lord. In his name, they made promises to each other, uh, covenanted to each other. And it's on the basis of this covenant of the Lord that he'll later talk about as a, a covenant of loving kindness um, that he finds the security and the confidence to come to Jonathan to begin with. And that's one of the things that a covenant does that kind of are, you see played out in this, this chapter is that it is, covenants were intended to provide, one of the things they were intended to provide is a sense of security and assurance to the relationship. And that's why God, when he brought Adam and Eve together, he wedded them in a covenant to one another. And that's why still today, um, we make vows to one another as husband and wife before the altar and before God and say, you know, um, for richer, poorer, in sickness, and in health, that we promise to be faithful until death, do we part? Um, those vows before God were intended to be a context of security for a relationship. And the re- there's a reason why they exist. Um, and I recognize our culture has lost sight of the importance of covenants, but the Lord considers them sacred covenants because they are intended to preserve and secure a relationship. I mean, in a fallen world that we live in, um, as you well know, um, in the journey of life, uh, marriage has its easy times and has its more difficult times. And I haven't met anybody who's been married over 30 years who has not told me that they have at least once thought about leaving. At least thought about it. Because there are times when it gets hard. Or maybe there are times when that initial feeling of, of infatuation goes, or you just feel like, I've lost the love. It reminds me of that Earth, Wind, and Fire song. You know, and I, After the love is gone, what do you do then? You know? A lot of people are like, well, I'm not in love anymore, so... Well, their vows have been designed so that in those times that we remain true because we promised before God and before others that I will be true and in the process pray and pursue a restoration of the affection of the marriage. But that's what it was designed to do. And by the way, I don't say that to compound guilt for those of you who may have failed in those particular covenants, but just to state the truth of how covenants were designed to function. They were supposed to secure, secure relationship. And it's, it's, it should be overwhelming to the Christian heart to recognize that when God frames his relationship with his people, he does so in the form of covenant. By which he swore by his own name to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob to bring blessing to this planet and to his people. That he made a covenant with David, swore by his own name, a covenant that would be realized ultimately in the life of Jesus. And that covenant, I mean, he swore, he promised, was intended in terms of function to secure us and give us a sense of assurance that, that the relationship between God and us is not like a boyfriend-girlfriend where, hey, you know what, really not working out, Pfft, I'm gone. No, it's secured. He has promised and that's one of the places that we have to go, this idea of covenant, when, when we in our frail faith feel a sense of insecurity. We're people that are prone to doubt. We're people prone to wander. And to what do we then we return to, to 
rekindle the sense of security. Especially when the feeling that God loves me isn't there anymore. And I know some of you feel that way this morning. Maybe many of you. I don't feel like the Lord loves me. To what do you cling? And on what do you base your confidence that God loves you? On your feeling? That's our culture's base truth on feeling. Or do you go back to the fact that God promised? I'm not going to trust my feelings. I'm going to trust his covenant promises to me. I'm going to cling to those that he said he will never leave me nor forsake me and to trust him. That's where security is found, is in this covenantal idea, as David found security in the covenant he had with Jonathan. Security. You remember, if you've never read it, you've got to read it. John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Christian wanders off the narrow path. We wander too. And he finds himself in Doubting Castle, where there's a giant holding him prisoner and he can't get out until he reaches into his coat and pulls out these keys. And the keys are interpreted in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress as promises. And it's those keys that get him out of this doubtful situation and back onto the secure road of knowing these are covenant promises. God promised. He promised. And on those promises, we rest our heart, our security in a covenant relationship with the Lord. That's where we're supposed to go. God has bound himself, wedded himself to us. One of the reasons that we can find security in God's covenant with us is because of something else that we find here. Oh, by the way, I left this out, but you know, it's this whole covenant context that allows Paul to write to to the Romans some of our favorite verses where he says that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, love of God in Christ. That's how certain it is. But these are framed in the context of God's covenant relationship with us. He swore and then made that a reality in Jesus. But one of the things that makes it secure that we also find in this story is um, enduring loyalty. That's another aspect of, of covenant love, is enduring loyalty to the person that you covenant with. That, too, comes to light. Beginning in verse 12, we read, And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. It's like witnesses in a marriage. Be witness, when I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. I am st- if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house. That is his, his children and his great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan, by the way, that to me tells me that he knew that David was supposed to be king. When it says the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David, he knew the hand of God was on David. He knew kingship belonged to him, David, not Jonathan. And he's asking for steadfast love for his progeny. 
And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Now, how many times love is in there? Steadfast love and swearing. These are guys who are intent, faithful, and loyal to each other. And notice, like he's saying, listen, if I find out there's evil in my father's heart, the king's heart, far be it from me, may the Lord kill me if I don't let you know and get you out of here safely. What he's doing is he is showing his allegiance and his um, loyalties to David over and against his own flesh and blood. They say blood is thicker than water, but not in Jonathan's case. Covenant is thicker than blood. And he has promised allegiance and and loyalty to his friend David. Um, And I don't think, by the way, it's just because David was a likable guy with a good personality and who brought down Goliath. It's deeper than that. As I mentioned earlier, I believe that Jonathan understood that David was headed in a particular place. God's hand was behind David. His purpose was to make David king. And all Jonathan was doing was aligning himself with God's will. This is God's choice. And I align myself with God's choice. As opposed to my dad who is resisting God's choice. So the deepest allegiance or loyalty, if you will, of his heart was to the Lord who had placed David, anointed David to be the next king of Israel. And he was showing his allegiance to the Lord by showing his allegiance to David. Loyalty. And notice, um, David does the same thing in response. He promises to show steadfast love not only to Jonathan, but to his house. And the rest of David's story in 2 Samuel will prove, long after Jonathan has died on the battlefield of Gilboa, that he made that a reality. He was loyal until the day he died to this covenant. He saw to it until his last breath that he honored this covenant in the name of the Lord, this covenant of steadfast love with his, his friend and with the future king, King David. That is part of what it means to be in a a covenant relationship. Uh, loyalty. Loyalty. In which um, Jesus, God, has shown himself loyal to his covenant by fulfilling all of his promises through his son, Jesus. He's brought it to reality. He's proven himself faithful. And he will show himself faithful. That's his side. Faithfulness to the very end much like David was faithful to the end, which is why David is another reason why David's a man after God's own heart. At the same time, we're called in this love relationship with the Lord to have this enduring loyalty to Him. And this is the part that really needs to be heard and reflected upon by everyone who calls himself a Christian. Because when we entered into this covenant relationship, it was like a relationship between husband and wife. There's going to be no other gods besides you. Jesus gives us that kind of indication when he writes this. And again, this is in a covenant context. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's the loyalty of love. The loyalty of covenant love. That ultimately our loyalties 
are to Jesus. And there is to be no challenger. There is to be no parallel. There is to be uh, no competition to that. That our loyalty to him should exceed the loyalty we have to our children, to our wives, to our parents, to our family names, to our ethnicity, certainly our political party, and our country. And even though our loyalty to Jesus, the loyalty of our love, may be flawed and imperfect, it should be the inner intent of every Christian heart, intent of the heart and the declaration of the lips, that he is my king. And though I serve him imperfectly, he's still my king. And my loyalties are to him over everything else. That's what it means to live in covenant relationship. Did you ever think about your relationship with Jesus as a covenant relationship where there's loyalty? He's loyal to you. He came for you. Is there a response back to him that says, ah, you're my king? The same way that Jonathan shows his loyalty to David. Loyalty. Loyal in your relationship. If there's no loyalty in one's relationship, to the Lord. And I'm not talking about the imperfected, flawed uh, fabric of our lives. I'm, what I'm talking about is the stated intent of the heart. That Jesus is the one ultimate authority in my life before whom I bow. Then it's really not Christianity. Why do you call me Lord and you don't do what I say? It's a contradiction that we submit, that we listen, that we hear, we form our views of reality in trust in who he is as king. There's one other aspect that comes out in this, this story about covenant love. Someone said to me first service, said, yeah, the first two are you know, nice and warm feeling, but the last one kind of hurt a little bit. And that is, you find that this covenant love is costly and full of self-sacrifice and self-denial. Full of self-sacrifice and self-denial. If you think back in Jonathan's situation, um, you'll see it almost immediately. I mean, this is a kid, Jonathan, who is, who is the, the hero of chapter 14 of 1 Samuel. He is the crown prince. He's the firstborn son of the king. He is, in the dynastic world, he is the one to receive the scepter. In chapter 14, he believed that God does not save by many or by few. And, and he went on to prove that when he and his armor bearer went against an entire garrison of Philistines. And as a result, turned the tide of the war and the entire army, which was a number upon numbers, was completely decimated. All because of his faith. So he was a, a rising hero. He had faith in the Lord. And, um, and Israel loved him. He was on the way up. But when he made this covenant with David and protected David, he was setting aside worldly gain. You get what he did? Because you imagine giving away the potential of being president so that someone else could be? I mean, 
in our world, where you step on the guide to get above him, Jonathan should have shot David, killed him. He had everything to gain by killing this competitor, but he doesn't. He's willing to self-deny his, his own potential future for the sake of the one that he knows the Lord has chosen. Sacrificing his future for the sake of the one that the Lord has placed his blessing upon. And it's costly for him. He takes a position against his father with David. It's costly. It's, it's a self-sacrifice. And David, by the way, would do the same. Long after, Dave, long after Jonathan was, was, was killed, we find David extending mercy and grace and loving kindness to the son of Jonathan at his own expense. That's the cost sometimes of love. So willing to sacrifice because that's what it means to live in covenant. Is to self-deny, is to recognize there's a cost to love. Well, back to the story real quick. Remember that I said there was this test they were going to do? Um, we're going we're gonna to not show, I'm not going to show up for two nights and let's see if Saul gets mad. Well, the first, first night he doesn't show up, text gives us the indication that Saul wasn't all that bothered by it. He thought there was probably an excuse for it. But the second night, this is what happens. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come. Now he's pinning the reason David is not there on himself. I gave him permission not to be here. And Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Now, I hope that Mrs. Saul wasn't listening when he said this. And I, I'm, I'm guessing, I, I don't know the contextual vulgar world of the ancient Hebrews, but I'm guessing this is probably a little bit more vulgar than, than we have here in the English translation. You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, I... <laughs> Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame, that you've chosen him to your own demise and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, uh, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. He knows what's at stake. You're giving up the kingdom for this guy. What are you doing? And that's precisely what he's done. And Saul was mad as heck about it. Therefore, send and bring him to me. Bring David to me, for he'll surely die. This is a command that Jonathan will refuse to obey. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled a spear at him to strike him. The very same spear that was thrown at David it, maybe three different times is now thrown at Jonathan because of his allegiance and loyalty to him. He puts his life at risk for the sake of this covenant love. But that's what, that's what the kind of covenant love of the Lord is like. By the way, he does go on to fulfill his covenant responsibilities. He goes out and finds David through a kind of ingenious little communication technique with arrows and so forth, and he tells him, my dad's out to kill you. You need to get out of here. And they both weep. 
He showed himself to be true. But that's what covenant love does. It's willing to pay the cost, sacrifice, self-deny. Now, now think about it in, in terms of our covenant relationship with God. Wouldn't you... Wouldn't you agree that based upon what the scripture says that when God made promises to save his people that he sacrificed the most important thing possible to gain us? And we didn't deserve it. That is, God shows himself to be one who covenanted himself to us though we didn't deserve it in a way that cost him his own son. He paid the price. A, a, a price that we have to kind of go back over and over again and rethink, oh God, who was I when you came to me? And, and I can't believe your love would traverse the galaxies, come down the infinite distance from heaven down into our dust and, and bear a cross and bear the guilt of my sin upon himself in a way that he would feel and then to allow himself to be humiliated and crushed and killed on my behalf. That's, that's God's covenant come into reality. And shows you the level of sacrifice. And our part is responding to his love and his grace as the Holy Spirit works in our life to do precisely the same back. As he was a willing sacrifice for us, so we're told to be living sacrifices of love back to him. And offer everything, whatever it costs me, to be your child or to be your church. That's what it means to live in covenant relationship with you. It's, it's, it's all, every piece of me is yours. It's covenant relationship. You know, there's that passage in Scripture where, where Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up the cross, and follow me. And I think I've done a pretty bad job of preaching that text on other occasions. Because he's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't himself done. When he laid aside his glory, he didn't consider equality with God something to be, be grasped, but, but humbled himself and took the form of a, a slave king for us. And he simply says, respond in the same way. All of those little private selfish dreams that you have, are you willing to set those aside out of love? for me who first loved you and just kind of lay it all down and, and whatever it costs to be a follower of Jesus, I'm willing to pay it because he's worth it that much. That's covenant love. And that's the heart of what this Christian relationship is supposed to be. We're not supposed to wear our Christianity like a fashionable code of convenience to maybe ease our conscience a little bit and give us a respectability in the, in the, in the, in the neighborhood. It's no, it's a relationship that's all in because he was all in. Like marriage is supposed to be all in. Just like that. Only greater. Is that the kind of Christianity that you know? Because I'll tell you, when, when we bowed the knee to Jesus at the moment of our conversion, we entered into a covenant relationship with him. Um, a relationship of love of supreme loyalty to him that's willing to pay any cost to be loyal to him. 
out of love for him who first loved us. I don't know. It just seems to me that that kind of Christianity, um, viewed that way, separates the superficial from the substantive, the shallow from the real. And I, and I pray and hope that you reflect on that in your own life and ask the, really the most important question one can ask themselves over and over again, and that is, is this relationship with Jesus real as defined by what we see here? Is it growing in this direction? Do I find myself being um, more sacrificial with my life as he calls me to give more of my time to him at church and in work and in life and in play and at home? You know, the true mark of whether or not you really get his love for you and you love him in return, that covenant love is that love for him will begin to spill over onto others in the same ways. There will be an increasing loyalty that you have to your brothers and sisters who are part of this covenant community with you. Um, A willingness to self-sacrifice and pay the cost in order to love another person who Jesus loved and died for. Um, And if that's a reality, and is a growing reality in your life, then you know what? The people out there who live by different definitions of what love is are going to see and experience something different. And they're perhaps, for the first time, going to see light instead of darkness. Light instead of darkness. But this is wholly different than the way in which our, our world conceives of love. Covenant love. With Jesus, him for us, us for him, and us for each other. One final, one final just thought. Experience. Back up to Hume. In the Ponderosa Chapel, which many of you have been in, is the big one. Um, I think I've been going there for 14 years. Every year, John is here and some of the other staff. There's, over the years, there's this pastor. I'll never forget him. Who every year would wheel his, his wife in to the chapel. At some point, long before I ever saw her, she had a massive stroke. She couldn't even hold her head up straight. And it doesn't take much imagination to recognize that this pastor um, had to clean his wife, feed his wife, wheel her everywhere, take her to the doctor, bring her home, put her in bed, get her undressed, and get her dressed. And he showed up year after year after year, pushing his wife in this wheelchair. And something tells me that he didn't sign up for that when he said, I do. But he showed up year after year after year. And day after day, week after week, cared for her. And she didn't exactly have like a lot to give back. But when you see things like that, that is a perfect example of covenant love. Because I said I do. And I meant it. And I said it before the Lord. And I will love her until she dies. And she did. And he was faithful to the end. I'll tell you, church, that's Christianity at its best. And when you see that, it's something so different and so glorious and so full of Jesus. And I hope, I just pray and hope that that's the kind of people that we're becoming here at Parkway. Will you take just a moment and just say, Lord, maybe just a prayer.
Maybe it's a confession. I don't love like that, but I need to. Will you, will you give me grace and enable me to just love people and love, more importantly, you in, in that way? jealous for me he loves like a hurricane I am a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy when all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions eclipsed by glory Oh, I realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affections are for me. And oh, how he loves us all. Oh, how he loves us. How he loves us all.
God, thank you. Thank you that you start the love, you sustain the love, and you culminate the love. And one day soon, we will see you with our eyes. But we thank you, Lord, that by faith, the kingdom of God has arrived and that we can live in that love now. Christians, I was told by a man one day, I was singing God songs at work, and he stopped by and he looked in the door, he says, Barry, you sing like you believe that stuff. Let's sing like we believe it. One day when heaven was filled with his praises, one day when sin was as black as could be, Jesus came forth to be born of a virgin, dwelt among
Father, we thank you that we can live in that grace and that encouragement that you will complete the love that you started in each one of us. God, watch over our hearts. Help us to walk in the way that is Jesus Christ. For he is our truth. He is our life. He is our way. And in his name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you all. You are dismissed. If we could help stack the chairs and piles of five, that'd be awesome. Yeah, that happened to me in the first set. That's why I couldn't hear myself. Woo! Watch, watch, watch. Got it. Don't wait.